welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to another episode of Creative Piecemeal. I am Tammy. Today I am joined by author Colleen Thompson from the historical novels that began her writing journey, written as Gwyneth Alty and Colleen Easton, to the riveting romantic suspense, which are some of my favorites, that have become her trademark. Colleen Thompson writes stories that show us that sometimes love can kill. You can find her full bio in the show notes along with the links to purchase her books. Welcome to the show, Colleen. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. And we have some serendipitous timing because not only is it February, the sort of month of love and friendship, but you're also about to launch a new book. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. My, my latest release is Danger at Clearwater Crossing. It's, in fact, the release date is um, today, the day we're recording on February 22nd, and Danger at Clearwater Crossing is the first in a series called Lost Legacy, and it's a book that I've wanted to write for a really long time in a series. It was inspired by a story I've been following in Houston News for years about a man who lost his child when... um, his wife took his child to South America and his in-laws refused to give the child back. There was a custodial issue and he was fighting for years to get this child back to him. And it was really a heart-rending story about this this years-long custody battle that went on and all the difficulties he had before he was able to see his child again. And my brain being as it is started to play the what if story with this. Well, what if the custody problem were complicated? And I came up with the story of uh, Mac Hill Walker, whose wife took his twin toddlers to Argentina before her tragic death and a drowning accident and whose uh, well-heeled parents refused to give the toddlers back to Mac. And he has been ruined financially and emotionally by an eight-year custody battle for those children. At the beginning of, of Danger at Clearwater Crossing, his fortunes have changed and the children are about to be returned to the are being returned to this country in the company of a social worker that uh, the governor has selected to to bring them back and make sure that uh, Mac is ready to have them and that the kids are going to be okay because there's been a lot of public invo- um, involvement in this story and that the kids are ready. 
the complication is the children no longer speak English. And Sarah, the social worker, does speak Spanish. So she's been acting as translator and helping the children to transition. Through a twist of fate, she ends up taking on responsibility for those children longer to help them regain trust for the father who they've been taught by their grandparents is a very different sort of man than the loving parent he purports to be. So there's a lot of building conflict. Mac feels some resentment that Sarah is standing between him and the children that he loves so dearly and wants back so much, but he realizes he can't force them to trust them. And there seems to be someone watching the family and trying to interfere with this custodial arrangement um, being returned to normal. So there, there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of things going on, a lot of intrigue, and eventually a great deal of suspense. So I had a lot of fun writing this. I had a lot of challenges writing it because you have the language barrier going on. You have a, a character who's translating for other characters and how to depict that in the story. I had a lot of fun writing it because it was something so different for me. And writing the psychology of these, um, of these children who are 11 years old, they're the age of students that I taught when I was a middle school teacher, and what it would be like as kids to have been uh, given an alternate reality and how they would adjust to that as they see things or maybe not as they thought. Nice. Well, that sounds really enticing. I can't wait to pick that up. And it's officially the book birthday today. So that's very cool. Yeah, it's the book birthday. I, I brought a copy to uh, show you. I know that we're not on video here, but just to take a look. Yeah, nice, nice. So who or what inspired you to become an author? I have been making up stories just, you know, to tell my little sister in the bedroom that we shared since I was about five years old. <laughs> And um, making up stories before I went to sleep, just since I was a small child, it's always been a part of who I am and how I make sense of the world. I have written since I was very small. And, uh, you know, the only thing I think that was holding me back was how hard cursive was for me when I was a kid. <laughs> I was a very clumsy writer. The computer really helped me a lot get through the, the logistics of that. But I've always been tinkering with stories my whole life. It, it took me a long time to think of actually trying to do that for a living. I was a language arts teacher before I was a, a professional writer but I was always tinkering and writing on the side, working on my stories, entering contests. And as I got more and more serious about it, it occurred to me that, you know, people do this for a living. And if it's really my passion, I need to pursue it. What's happened that made you take that leap or that risk to become a full-time writer? That's a good question because I had, you know, I, I probably could have come to it sooner. I was in teaching for about 15 years. And I went back and to school and got my master's degree in school administration. And I started interviewing for jobs as a school principal to start as a school assistant principal. And it began to occur to me that if I started down that path, that I was going to have to make a choice. 
that I was either going to lose the time that I was taking out of my private time. And I was a young mom at the time too, and spending on writing and put it into all the after-school activities and things that went into being a school assistant principal or a school principal or, you know, full bore into that responsibility and leave my passion behind, or I was going to dedicate myself on that track. And I realized I just couldn't leave the writing. I was doing well in contests. I was really getting a lot of joy out of the writing I did and the connections I was making with people in writing groups. And I decided that I wouldn't be happy if I didn't give it my all. So actually put aside the degree that I had just worked very hard for instead and decided that I'm going to really go for it. And it took me a few years before I got my first writing contract, but I I had several writing contracts right in a row, and I never looked back from that. If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, overwhelmed, or exhausted, the resources and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. Yeah. Wow. Well, that that sounds so inspiring. And I can only imagine that it probably took a lot of thinking and a lot of like debating on your part to really make to make that happen. It definitely did. It was a big financial risk. It took a lot of faith on my husband's part as well. We had to talk about it. We had to budget for it because it is a risk. It's definitely a risk. Writing is not a thing where you know what you're going to make in any given year. And I was going from a work situation where I always knew what my salary would be. And I did continue teaching until I was getting more consistent book contracts. But then at a certain point, I realized that I could only write fast enough to really make it if I stepped back from teaching and I I took the chance and stepped out of the classroom. So it, it was a it was a huge risk. Do you think it's easier or harder nowadays for writers to make it full time? You know, I think that in in some ways, it's both. Mm-hmm. There are different avenues than there used to be. There are not as many gatekeepers in some ways, but in other ways, there's so much more competition because anybody can self-publish, but the competition is so wide open that it's harder to get noticed in that way. So I, I don't know. Writing has always been incredibly difficult. As hard as it is to get traditionally published, it's harder to stay published. 
and harder to sustain a career. There will always be ups and downs career-wise and financially. Whether you go traditionally published, as I mostly have, I'm, I'm almost all my books are traditionally published, or you go self-published, there are pros and cons to that. And there are people who have been very successful in each avenue. And there are a lot of people that have not been successful in each way. Uh, there's no right or wrong. There's just the way that's best for you. For myself, I've, I've gone with traditional publication because I'm less attuned to the business side of it. And I don't want to be doing the marketing all the time. I, I want to concentrate more on, on the writing. That seems to be my strength. What is some writing advice that you always follow and then some writing advice that you do not follow? What a great question. A great piece of writing advice that I had from um, an author named Joanne Ross, who's been around for a long time and has been very successful. When things slow down, to put another bear in the canoe. <laughs> <laughs> And meaning that when, when your story seems to bog down in the middle, just find some way to amp up that tension, find some way of, to get things going with more suspense, more tension, more things at stake in it. And she's absolutely right about that. What, how could it be worse? What else could possibly go wrong? And, you know, what would be the absolute worst thing that could happen to my heroine at this point? What is she most afraid of? And then do it. Or he, you know, what is he most afraid of? Make them face their worst fears because it's the only way they're going to have the growth that they need to achieve their happiness or, and to overcome whatever it is that's been holding them back in life and preventing them from getting there happily ever after. Because it's not about someone else saving that hero or heroine. It's about that heroine being able to overcome their own flaws, their own sticking points, and figure out what makes them tick so that they can be happy with somebody else. It, it's not magically, you know, that love is going to fix them. Love is going to give them the strength or the motivation to fix themselves throughout the story, but they have to be really, really pressed by a lot of, a lot of uh, challenges and, and really hard challenges. It, it feels sometimes like you're torturing them, but in that crucible, they're going to find their strength. So that's probably the best advice that I've, I've had and advice that I would say that I would have not taken is the old chestnut to write what you know, because I really think it's write what you want to know, mm. write what you want to discover. I have learned so much about so many disparate things by writing about them. I find something that I'm intensely curious about and I research the heck out of it. And as I'm discovering what's fascinating about it, that's what I'm going to share with my readers. And I'm going to share my enthusiasm for it. As somebody who, who taught school for a long time and somebody who likes to teach fellow writers, I always thought the best teachers that I had and the way I could be a better teacher is to convey my enthusiasm for things, right? I mean, if you think back to the best teachers you ever had in school, weren't they the ones that were passionate about what they were doing? 
well, the, that excitement about a subject and about something that you love and you're really thrilled about and to thrilled to share with others is what makes you tick. And if it's something you're just bored with and already know everything about, when you get started, you might not be as enthusiastic about it and about getting into it with other people. But sometimes those new things that you're just learning about and you're like, isn't it cool? And you're just discovering these things. You can convey that thrush, uh, fresh enthusiasm as you're learning it to other people. So I really think that that joy of fresh discovery and learning new things. I don't really love getting bogged down in long, writing long series because I like to learn about fresh things, discover new venues, new subjects, new settings, new worlds that I can write about and introduce readers to the things that I find really fun about them. Some of my favorite books that I've written have taught me about different things. I wrote a book where I got to go up to do research and, and fly in gliders, found out all about gliders. And I introduced a suspense element with gliders and, you know, somebody, somebody um, tampering with one. That was a lot of fun. And it was very exciting because I was excited about it. Another one I, I researched, uh, one, of, one of my historicals, I spent months and months researching the destruction of a steamship at the end of the Civil War called the Sultana. It was the largest maritime disaster in American history, and people haven't really heard of it because it occurred at the end of the Civil War at the, on the same day as the Chicago fire. And uh, it was not very long after Lincoln's assassination, so it just kind of gotten buried in a lot of other news. Actually, a fascinating piece of history. The months that I spent researching it were really, really interesting. Spending the time digging into that and putting it there. And for um, Danger at Clearwater Crossing, the book that I've just released, I spent a lot of time researching about custodial fights outside of the country and what, what a person would do if you had your children taken out of the country and you can't, couldn't get uh, a relative to give them back. How, how is that dealt with? How is that handled with uh, the legal system? And what are some of the situations people get themselves into because of it? I know that's something I really enjoy about the creative fields and especially creative writing is the researching and the learning. You know, you're always learning something. Yes, it's really fun. And one thing I have enjoyed about it is getting to call on people about their area of expertise and what they're enthusiastic about, about every once in a while, I'll contact somebody and I swear it's like I've reached out to this part older person who's been waiting their whole life for somebody to ask them about the subject and they can't wait to tell you everything about it. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that you talk to people in the field, which of course, you know, good authors do that. They don't just type into Google, you know? <laughs> right. I, I try very hard to do that and, you know, go into historical records and, and documents when I can or talk to um, law enforcement people when I can too. It makes it more authentic. And then of course you're learning and you're able to feed that into the story and make it more believable and everything. So definitely. So what is something that people familiar with your books may not know about you or your writing style? I saw for my writing style. Well, 
I am absolutely a, um, a research junkie, uh, to no one's surprise. And I use a lot of real stories as background for, uh, for my books. I come up with things that happen in real life and start twisting and turning them, like the story I was telling you about, about the man whose child um, was kept from him for so long before he was able to, thank goodness, recover the child. And I start making twists and turns on the story in my own mind to make it completely my own. But it originally will have the nugget from whatever real life story started it. So it has that authenticity to start with the emotions and of the people are what attract me to the story. Mm-hmm. The, um, something about the emotional hook of it usually brings me to the story in the first place. But many, many of my books are inspired by real life incidents. And eerily enough, I've occasionally gotten emails from people who know about the real life story, and they get where the story came from. And even though I take, I go to quite the lengths a lot of times to disguise where the story is, because I, I really don't want to, to exploit people who are, have had uh, violent crimes or tragic circumstances in their, in their families. So I do a lot of things to disguise where the ideas have come from, but inspiration can strike anywhere. And I have had people reach out to me and ask me, did you get this idea from, or did you know anything about a story about blah, blah, blah? Mm. And, and ask about it, but because something about the emotions speaks to me. There are universal emotional stories that strike our hearts, yeah, and they really make us think uh, about how we would react to things. And it's like we rehearse how we would handle things, and it's part of what makes us human. We twist and turn that around and we think about the kind of human beings we are and how we might handle the situations. And what I like to make sure that I do is handle it in a way where justice wins the day, where in the end, the people who deserve a happy ending get one and the, the victims of crime are um, have justice, have some sort of justice. And the bad are not unpunished in this. So, you know, I can't control what happens on the news. I can't make everything have a happy ending and, and justice always prevail. There are sadly some, some tough situations in the world, but fiction, whether it's crime fiction, like murder mysteries or romantic fiction, I think it, it serves to set our world right it gives us some comfort in the world to think that justice can prevail and good can win out as it sometimes does. And that good people by doing the right thing can, can prevail. Yeah. I'm a sucker for happy endings. I mean, I will read books that don't always have happy endings. Mm -hmm. They maybe have ambiguous ones for various artistic reasons, but pretty much everybody loves a good happy ending. Definitely. Definitely. 
you know, as authors, we create, we twist, we, we come up with things from our imagination, but every once in a while, there's going to be writing tropes that get into your work, whether it's on purpose or just accidental. So what are some of your favorite writing tropes? I very much like to use second chances. And um, I often have characters who have messed things up badly early on, perhaps a relationship that didn't work right for various reasons. And Mm -hmm. they get a second chance. They get a second chance to, to work things through and make it and do things right this time because it's nice to, it'd be nice if we all had second chances wouldn't it right things we, or things we all regret and things that we wish we could do over in the world uh in this life and I really like seeing that it, or writing that in fiction that do-over opportunity I like that a lot I seem to come back to that often and write about that. And I write about a a lot about forgiveness and especially the theme of Mm -hmm. self-forgiveness because I think that something that really messes people up a lot in life is when they can't forgive themselves, they end up punishing themselves and everybody around them because they won't allow themselves to experience happiness. They're blaming themselves for for something they did, something they didn't do, some perceived failing of theirs. And it may have been a mistake. It may have been a perceived mistake, but at a certain point you have to deal with it or you're not going to be able to move on in your life. You're not going to be able to have a satisfied life. And I mean, I know that um, we talked about the fact that you worked with hospice and that uh, my sister has, and that we both had, you know, experiences in that range. People at the end of their life often have a lot of regrets and it's not, money at the end of their life that people are worried about or what they achieved or whatever. But sometimes it's those, those regrets or those mistakes that they want to set right at the end of their life. It's things like, why didn't I forgive this person? Or why didn't I make this right? But a lot of times it comes back to why didn't I forgive myself? Why did I waste my whole life punishing myself for something that happened when I was 16 or something that didn't happen or that I didn't do or thinking I was this kind of person and limiting myself or, or whatever. So I think that that self-forgiveness comes up a lot in my writing too. Yeah. And I really, I really love that in your books and well, in, in any books it comes up in that it's even in one of my current books in progress, because it's just, it really gives you some meat and potatoes to work with, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I think that, I think probably all of us struggle with that to a certain extent. We all have, we, I, I think we all have regrets and, uh, you know, how, how heavy they are with you and how, how far you want to carry them makes a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. If you were to engage in any other creative art, what would it be? That's a good question. I'm a really terrible singer, so it definitely wouldn't be that. I used to, used to draw a lot 
and uh, do pen and ink and, and painting. And I think I might like get back into that if I weren't, if I weren't doing um, the writing because I, I enjoyed it a lot. Nice. nice. I feel like there's been a resurgence of artistic activity during the pandemic. I think so. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I dipped a lot of art when I was younger and um, I kind of put it aside to really focus on my writing. But I think like a lot of people, as you get older, you sort of want to go back to that and to, to that outlet. Sometimes to use my, um, use some art and use collaging and things like that to help me start my writing, to get ideas together. And a lot of times the, the writing that begins with imagery for me is really powerful. I like that a lot. I don't do it all the time, but it's a really good way for me to, to begin a project of doing an art piece and trying to get some kind of central vision for what I'm writing about it together. I, I know a number of, of authors who do that, many of whom are really, really talented in the visual arts. That's really great. It sort of reminds me of how people will journal before they start mm -hmm. a story, or maybe they'll create a mood board online, things like that. Yeah. Yes. I love that the creative writing sort of spawns different artistic abilities or even explorations in people. Definitely. Might be a, tr a tricky question to answer, but if your life was a novel, what would the title be? I have to think about that. Hmm. Paddling upstream. I like it. And I'd, I'd say that because a lot of times I feel like I was fighting against the flow and doing things the hard way hmm. instead of flowing with it and taking a different path, taking a different path. I know that my whole family was on the East Coast. And when I got out of school, I took a job in Yuma, Arizona, and got in a car and drove there. <laughs> I was recruited there to teach out in the desert. And, you know, just, just went out on my own, way away from anybody I'd ever known or anything, just to do something different. And it was quite the journey. Um, but it was, you know, the way I needed to find who I was as an adult separate from my family. I've done a lot of things the hard way in life, but it, it's gotten me where I am for better, or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then of course we, we can learn from those life lessons and put them in art and put them in our books and things like that. Definitely. I've definitely learned a lot from doing things that way. And, uh, you know, not all the lessons have been easy, but uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything about it. So I wanted to dig into the creative process. What is one of your favorite things about it and one of your least favorite things about it? And if you're able to, can you describe what yours looks like? Well, some days it is like chipping away at diamond <laughs> with, <laughs> with a plastic spoon and other days is just as wonderful it's you know definitely like doing uh, folding on my back downstream and everything is just fabulous it's definitely different at different times you know depending on whether i'm in flow or not it's definitely all about finding 
those moments of grace, right? It's about establishing patterns for me and, and working at it. And if you're lucky, you're at the right place when the flow hits, you know, but you have to, you have to put in the sweat equity. You have to be there when it's hard because it's going to be hard a lot of the time. Writing is, it's not easy a lot of the time. And uh, I've been, I've been professionally publishing since 99. So I've been doing this quite a long time. Some of those days are really tough. Some of those days, I really don't feel like doing it. And some of those days I'd rather be cleaning the bathrooms, but other days I can't think of anything I would rather do at all. And I get up in the middle of the night and write because I'm so excited about it and I can't stop myself. And I, I'm, I'm just really carried away with it. Just like I was when I first started, but you have to be there for the tough stuff or you won't, you won't be in the chair when it shows up. You just never know when those moments of joy are going to be there for you. I think that's what a lot of people don't get about writing. They expect it to be all joy all the time, all ecstasy. And it's just not like that. It's a job. Yeah. And you have to work at it. Uh, and it is work. If you expect it to be all playtime, you're going to be very disappointed. Yes, it has times like that, for sure. For sure. But if you want to stay published if you want to stay publishing if you want to have a production schedule you just can't wait for inspiration to hit you just have to okay inspiration's going to hit if, you know for me i do word quotas i'm not so such a dictator with myself that i'm like i have to have so many words a day or so many words an hour or anything like that because i don't respond all that well for that but I, I try to do like, I have to have so many words a week because I do have to have, make my deadlines. So I'll figure out that even if I mess up my daily quota, I can get my weekly quota in. And I might get my weekly quota of words in, in, in four days and then have some time to fluff off. Or I might get extra words in that week, which gives me some uh, leeway if I have a bad week the following week. Because, you know, life happens sometimes, you know, if an emergency happens, I don't really beat myself up for it. I just look for places on the schedule where I can slip in a little extra time or whatever. I, I try to try to make a schedule for myself and try to stick with it as much as I can. And what is one of your favorite parts of creating, though? I love starting something new. I love where the world starts to come to life and the characters start to come to life in my imagination. And I start to hear them talking. When I start to hear the dialogue in my head, it's sort of magical. And I start to see parts of the scene. And when I'm describing it and my hands start moving faster than I, with my thoughts and I'm writing faster and faster or characters are arguing and I'm writing really fast. I love those moments where it just sort of takes off on me and I lose consciousness of the flow of time. I mean, that's writing in flow and it's just such a great feeling. It's like a drug and people in any of the creative arts talk about that a lot, that that's the experience that you, that you do uh, the work for because it feels very good when you're working at your capacity and it stops feeling like effort. 
and it's and it's just like your mind gets into gear the words just come the story just flows and you aren't working so much as you're trans it feels like you're transcribing the scene as as it's happening instead of as you're making it up because what's really happening is half of your brain is is transcribing what the other half of your brain is composing and in awe you know and, and <laughs> having fun with it and it, it's really a neat feeling so yes. that's my favorite part of the process. I love that part too. It doesn't happen nearly as often as we always want, right? It doesn't. <laughs> and you know, what's what's weird is in the end, you can't tell the parts of the book that were just chipping away at diamonds with a plastic spoon and the parts that were written in flow always. Although I'll, I notice a lot of times the easy parts of the book need very little editing and the hard parts of the book, you just have to slog at until you get them just right and speaking of hard parts of the book how do you get through that how do you get through times when you're sort of stuck or or not sure where to go next in the story what's worked well for you put another bear in the canoe (laughs) (laughs) but um I am uh, definitely somebody who chips away at things I know that there are people who write crummy first draft and that's their strategy They like barrel through that first draft and try to get to the end, even if it's they have a crappy first draft and then they fix the crappy first draft because it's a draft. I have a hard time doing that. I can't really go forward if I feel like something's wrong. It messes with my head. Like, I don't know what's supposed to come next. If something feels off, it messes me up. And I have to go keep going back. I'm working on the same chapter or the same scene if I can't get it right until I have it right. So I will torture myself over a scene that's not working for a long time sometimes and rewrite it three or four times or more until I have it singing. I can relate. Yes. (laughs) I'm the same way. (laughs) There are people who are plotters and there are people who are they're just bare knuckle writers and they'll bash through it and there's no neither one is right or wrong people like you and i that that torture that scene until they have it right they usually have a pretty good draft when they're finished and they don't have as much editing to do they don't write a whole bunch of successive drafts i couldn't do that i i don't don't work that way uh, write a whole, you know, like draft two, draft three, draft four. But I mean, I'll have drafts that I know there's part of that's rough that I need to fix. But usually I just, I just can't go on if it feels wrong. It'll be something that feels, because whatever feels off will affect the rest of the draft. You know, mm-hmm. how do I know what's going to come after it if I don't have it right? Because I might change something major about that, you know, or go back and maybe, maybe I need to rewrite something really significant earlier on. It'll mess everything else up. I don't want to do that because you pull a thread and everything falls apart, right? Yep. 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 Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah. For me, I, I just can't work the other way, but everybody's different and that's okay. 
Yeah, I've tried. I have. I've tried working the other way and outlining, and I'm like, I I can't do it. <laughs> rarely, rarely, I'll jump ahead and write a scene from lighter in the books. But I'm pretty linear about my writing. I I don't do that very often. I know I know writers that write the whole book out of order and then put them together. If it works for them, that's great. I actually I, I think that's a superpower. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty. I, I can't really do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to know I'm not the only person who just just keeps hammering those scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's hard, but there's no easy way to write a book. And what's maddening about the whole book process sometimes is that I, I've written like 35 books, and sometimes you'll go to write like the next book, and it's as if you've never written one before because it has to be written in a completely different way. And that's what I don't understand about books, because there are some books that they just they need to be written in a different way or you'll just take it upon yourself to write them in a completely different way. I almost always plot out my books before I write them, but I have written a couple of them pantsing. And for me, that's the hard way. Takes me longer that way. But um, every once in a while, the spontaneity has to be there for me. I think I've done it maybe twice out of all those, uh, out of three dozen bugs. But, you know, every once in a while, a book comes along that has to be done that way. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that you gather inspiration from some really unusual places sometimes? Like if you're like in the grocery store and all of a sudden you've got to write something down, you know? Not so much of the grocery store, but weird, weird stories or historical facts or bizarre things that I've read somewhere or trips that I've gone on and I'll hear this legend or something like that. It'll be, it can be something really strange that tips me off and gives me an idea. And once it gets a hold of me, I I have snippets of things written in the notes section of my, uh, of my iPhone that are just like one line here or there that are just little bits of inspiration and it's like a kid select uh, collecting pieces of string or something that just little snippets of ideas and stuff but they're just the strangest things sometimes but if they stick in my head long enough and they won't leave me alone then they're keepers I love that yeah well one time I started an entire book which I've eventually shelved, but all because of a song. Like mm-hmm. I heard a song and it yeah. just triggered something. Mm-hmm. Always interesting how that works, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It's fun. It's kind of the fun part of being a, a, a creative. Get to do, be a, like a magpie and collecting little bits of this and that. Something, ooh, something shiny, right? <laughs> yep, yep. So sort of a quirky question. If you could have dinner with any creative person dead or alive, who would it be? That is a good question. And I want to say Ben Franklin. I just think that he would really keep you on your toes. He knows lots of stuff about science. He was an avant-garde guy who liked to chase the ladies. (laughs) uh, I, I might have to watch myself. Um, and he just was a really interesting, interesting man of, of his time, knew, knew a little bit about politics, knew a little bit about this, a little bit about that. I don't know what made me think of his, him, but he's the first guy, that, person that popped into my brain. He just was 
such a, a renaissance man for his time period. And I think he would be really fascinating to talk to. Oh, definitely. I don't think anyone's mentioned Ben Franklin yet on the show. Probably not. That's probably. <laughs> probably <laughs> That's okay, <awkward>. though. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think he would be completely eccentric and really interesting to talk to. So one last question. What does living a creative life mean to you? I, I think that living a creative life, though, is devoting yourself to the idea that dreams matter, not only yours, but other people's and the, the dreams that you share when you make any a work of the imagination, because it's not just your imagination that's involved. It's the reader's imagination. You're only doing half the work when you write a book. The other half of the work comes from the reader who brings that world to life in their, in their mind as they go through the book. And whatever you think that book is, as you write it, it becomes something completely different in the mind of each reader who, who takes it on. Those characters come alive there and they work or they don't work. They live or they don't live and they inspire or they don't each and every person. I think that as, as I started out on my writing journey, I really felt like it was important to be an example to my son, to my nieces and nephew, that following dreams is important. It matters. And a woman's dreams in particular matter. And they have validity. That's really what having a creative life means. Well, I love that. I love that, Colleen. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Colleen. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Listeners, please check out Colleen's latest book, Danger at Clearwater Crossing, or any of her other amazing romantic suspense novels, thrillers, et cetera, et cetera. They're fantastic. She's got a bevy of them. And uh, links will be in the show notes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for Creative Piecemeal Podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.